Good afternoon. Hello and welcome to this uh, lunch hour lecture. I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Peter, Professor Peter Brocklehurst, um, with his lecture entitled, Where to Give Birth at Home or in a Hospital? Does it matter? Thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry, that was a bit loud, wasn't it? Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Peter Brocklehurst. I'm Professor of Women's Health here at UCL. I'm Director of the Institute for Women's Health. My background is as an epidemiologist, although I'm not going to give lots of statistics today. I'm going to show some tables, but hopefully I'll explain them clearly enough. Uh, I'm going to talk about safety of planned place of birth. I'm going to stray from the title a little bit, not just restrict it to home birth, but talk about other birth settings outside uh, hospital in the UK. Um, you may be aware that this is still a very controversial and hotly debated issue. Uh, most Sunday newspapers have something about home birth in them most weeks, uh, and there's very little you can do about home birth without getting a lot of media attention. So I felt I, I, uh, I will declare my conflict of interest in this in a moment, but I thought I'd talk about maternity care policy, and I'm talking about England. I'm talking about the, uh, the UK initially, but predominantly about England here. I'll talk about the big piece of research that we did, which is going to form the bulk of this, about the safety of planned place of birth. And I'll talk a little about interpreting the evidence and what we do with that evidence and how we handle evidence uh, in our decision-making around place of birth. So, first of all, I need to declare, declare a conflict of interest. I was specifically asked this question when I was presenting in the Netherlands, so I thought I'd better come absolutely clean and say that I was born at home. Um, but it was by accident. Um, which sort of gets me out of it. It wasn't a planned home birth. Uh, my mother was told she wasn't in labor, so she went back home and promptly had me in the bed. Uh, so I can sort of feel that I'm on both sides of the fence here um, and neutral in terms of the debate about planned place of birth. So uh, a little bit about maternity policy in England, uh, set by the Department of Health. Uh, you may be aware, some of you will be aware of this. This was the National, the National Service Framework the maternity standard, which came out from the Department of Health in England in 2004, which stated that every woman should be able to choose the most appropriate place and professional to attend her during childbirth based on her wishes and cultural preferences and any medical and obstetric needs she and her baby may have. And that options for midwife-led care will include midwife-led units in the community or on a hospital site. And that care was to be provided in a framework which enables easy and early transfer of women and babies who unexpectedly require specialist care. That was 2004. In 2007, another policy document came out from the Department of Health called Maternity Matters, which again stressed this issue about choice, access, and continuity about planned place of birth, and set out a national choice guarantee, saying that if uh, women uh, wanted to, or in discussion with their health professionals, chose different planned places of birth, then this would be provided for them. It would not be uh, wrong of me to say that this was on the basis of very little evidence about the safety of planned place of birth. Um, and I think that uh, although uh, many government, government departments talk about evidence-based policymaking, this was one of those instances where there was policy made without any evidence. So we had some information about the safety of planned place of birth, but it was all to do with outcomes for the mother. We had very little information about how safe or not it was for the baby, partly because as you might anticipate, the UK, like the West, rest of Western Europe, is about the safest place to have a baby in the world. And therefore, anything going wrong with the baby uh, will be very, very uncommon. So studies which were able to look at that were plagued by the fact that they couldn't show differences because the numbers were too small. 
and I'll come back to that a bit later. So we had a huge lack of evidence about the quantification of this risk of adverse outcomes for babies associated with births planned in different settings. Uh, and in this con context, I'm going to talk about in the NHS. And the problem we have, although we have lots of routine data collected in the NHS, we only have information about actual place of birth, not planned place of birth. So we were making inferences about the safety of different planned places of birth by only having national data on actual. So if I just show that here, obviously, if you're planning a birth at home, you're hoping that you have a birth at home. If you're planning a birth in hospital, you assume that you're going to have that birth in hospital. And if you're planning birth in a midwifery unit, you assume, or your intention is to give birth in that midwifery unit. But not surprisingly, there are transfers. And women transfer from home to the hospital and from a midwifery unit to the hospital. Now, there are very, very small numbers who transfer different ways. But predominantly, if a problem occurs during labor or after the birth, then the woman is transferred to a hospital, which is where the baby is delivered. So you can see that if there's a problem with the labor, the baby delivers in the hospital, that's then counted as a hospital birth. And so you might anticipate that babies with problems who, or who have adverse events, who maybe even die, will be overrepresented in the hospitals. Um, so that's all the data we have nationally, where you were born and the outcomes associated with where you were born, not where you plan to give birth. So this was I think recognized, finally, uh, by policymakers who then commissioned some research around trying to understand the safety of planned place of birth. So they funded this large project called the Birthplace Program, so the Department of Health and the National Institutes for Health Research jointly funded this program to provide high quality, quality evidence about processes, outcomes, and costs associated with different settings for birth in the NHS in England. Um, and I'm not gonna present all of that, but I'm gonna present some of it. The six main components of this study were, uh, well, first of all, we had to define terms and definitions uh, because uh, this area is plagued with different ways of describing the care that women receive in labor. So we often talk about midwife-led care or consultant-led care, but that's not a place, that's a sort of philosophy of care, that's who, who's the primary caregiver. It doesn't describe the place uh, that women receive care during labor. We had to do a mapping study of England to find out what was provided because we don't know. Interestingly, the NHS doesn't know what services it provides uh, on a national level, so a group of researchers have to find out by writing to everybody and finding out what they provide. Um, predominantly, I'm going to talk about this national prospective cohort study of planned place of birth. But we also, alongside that, did a large cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, we did some qualitative studies in case studies to look at aspects of how services provide uh, choice around planned place of birth and how they manage the workforce to be able to provide choice which is responsive to women's uh, wishes and uh, requests. Uh, and then a study of intrapartum related mortality using national data. Uh, so just a little bit, first of all, the, the four definitions, the four places of birth. An obstetric unit, which is a hospital, sometimes called a consultant-led uh, unit, but for this purposes, this was a hospital which was equipped with midwives, obstetricians, neonatologists, and anaesthetists. Home, fairly clear, although there was lots of debate about what is home. And if a woman plans to deliver in her mother's home, was that home? We, I think we decided in the end it was. It was fairly straightforward. Um, the two types of midwifery units were more challenging. We came up with a freestanding midwif midwifery unit. This is a midwifery unit which is geographically separate 
from an obstetric unit. So this could be some rooms above the shops on the high street, or it could be a unit within a hospital, but that hospital does not have an obstetric unit in it. So some smaller hospitals where the obstetric unit is closed and the obstetricians have moved out, that's become a midwifery unit. So there are no obstetricians on site, there are no obstetric anaesthetists, there are no neonatologists on site. By contrast, and alongside midwifery unit is a midwifery unit run entirely by midwives, which is geographically on the same site as an obstetric unit. And that's the most variable type. That may be two rooms in the labor ward which are designated as the alongside midwifery unit, or it may be a completely separate structure within a hospital, uh, which is very different, which has completely different staffing, rotor, and so on and so forth. So, so those are the four settings that I'm going to talk about uh, today. So we did this mapping study, which was very interesting. Um, you're not supposed to <laughs> spot the towns, but we looked at those centers that provided freestanding midwifery units alongside midwifery units and obstetric units. And you can see there are parts of the country where there's very little overlap. So uh, this was in 2008. Um, so at that time, this national choice guarantee couldn't be delivered because many parts of the country didn't have a midwifery unit. Uh, so the only real choice was between home and hospital. Um, and that's, that's based on the physical location. I mean, there are other barriers for women accessing different planned places of birth, but if you didn't have a midwifery unit, then you clearly couldn't plan to deliver one unless you were prepared to travel a long way when you went into labor, which uh, most women are not prepared to do. So coming on to the prospective study, the cohort study, the primary objective of this study was to compare intrapartum, so during birth, and early neonatal mortality. Early neonatal includes the first seven days after birth. And morbidity, so whether the babies died or whether they were very sick. By planned place of birth at the start of care in labor. So women can choose to have a home birth when they first book for 12 weeks. But clearly, things happen along the way in pregnancy that may make it not appropriate for that woman to choose to give birth at home by the time she gets to the stage where she goes into labor. We were interested in the safety of planning birth in labor, uh, the, pl the planned place of birth in labor, when you were actually in that planned place of birth and were receiving some care from a midwife. Uh, because that, we felt, would be the point where you'd women would make decisions about where they were planning birth if they knew the safety of that process. And this was in women judged to be at low risk of complications according to current national guidance. And very fortunately, NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, produced a guideline on intrapartum care a couple of years before we started collecting data, which had a whole checklist of conditions which it would be recommended that women don't consider birth outside an obstetric unit. So units were already used to using that checklist, which was very helpful. It gave us a way of deciding who was low and who was higher risk. We knew, because we've got very good data on mortality, that we could never show a difference in death. We knew that the risk of a baby dying at term without any complications was so very, very low, we wouldn't be able to show a difference in death. So we had to think of an outcome which included death, but which included other things other outcomes for the baby, which were related or could be related to the quality of care received during labor. And that's a, that statement incorporates weeks of debates and discussion about how we came up with this list. But these outcomes are neonatal outcomes which are associated with lack of oxygen during birth 
or trauma. But clearly, a fractured clavicle, which is the collarbone, and I don't know how many of you have fractured your clavicle. If you have, you'll know that there's absolutely no treatment. You're just told to go take painkillers and go away. And it's exactly the same in babies. So a fractured clavicle is not quite the same as a stillbirth in labor in terms of its importance. So we knew that we were putting together things which were not of equal importance, but the anticipation was that if there was a problem with a planned setting for birth or the quality of care in that setting, those outcomes would go in a similar direction. And I'll show you later what we actually found. We didn't know, we have no data to estimate what the proportion of these outcomes would be when we put this composite outcome together. But basically, any baby who had any of these was counted as having an adverse outcome for the sake of the study. And we aim to collect data from every NHS trust in England providing home birth services, every freestanding midwifery unit, every alongside midwifery unit, and a stratified random sample of 37 obstetric units. And the stratification factors were on size of the unit and also geography, the north and south of England. I didn't realize there was a line that geographers agreed divides the north and south of England, but there is. So we took uh, our stratified sample on either side of that line uh, and uh, looked at size. We knew we needed this study to be big. We knew we needed to collect data from at least 57,000 women so that we'd have about 47,000 who would be classified as low risk. That doesn't, that's not the proportion of low risk to high risk in the entire population of women delivering in this country because we excluded women having an elective cesarean section because they didn't have any labor, uh, those being induced, etc. So uh, we knew the, the systems we set up, we aimed to collect at least 57,000 women and anticipated that about 47,000 of those women would be in this low risk category. Um, this meant we, we had a data collection booklet which was completed, which had to follow the woman from when she came in in labor until she was five days post delivery. And midwives throughout the country filled in uh, thousands and thousands of uh, booklets uh, about the data and sent them back to us because these data are not available routinely. This is the only slide about analysis. Um, we adjusted for the main confounders in this uh, cohort study. So factors such as maternal age, ethnicity, understanding of English, partner status, body mass index, area deprivation score, so a, a proxy for socioeconomic status based on postcode, uh, parity, that's the number of births you've had, and gestation, so the actual gestational age of the baby, the number of weeks. Now, we only included term babies, but that's from 37 weeks. So the difference between 37 and 42 weeks could make a difference, so we included adjusted for gestation at birth. Uh, because the large numbers of comparisons we did, we used 95% confidence intervals, 99% confidence intervals for secondary outcomes, and you'll see those on the, on the table that I'm going to present. And we also planned to look at the difference between first-time mothers and second or subsequent-time mothers, because first-time mothers have a higher risk of adverse outcomes for both them and their baby. And we did this nice technical thing where we uh, collected data for different durations from different settings, so we had to wait by the duration of data collection to take account of that. We were largely successful. We did manage to collect data from almost all trusts. 97% uh, of trusts in England participated. 84% um, of AMUs, that seems a bit low, but that was because during the time that the study was going on, people were opening new alongside the periphery units. And once we'd started data collection, we didn't get any new 
alongside midwifery units in. By the time we'd finished, there were quite a few new ones. We got almost all freestanding midwifery units, and we had a representative sample of 36 obstetric units. You may remember that the original one was 37. One was so completely and utterly hopeless that we only got data returned for four women over a six-month period. This is a hospital that had over 5,000 births a year, so a slight under-ascertainment, we thought. Uh, so we ended up having to exclude that centre. We wanted to collect data on about eight, at least 85% of eligible women, as in low-risk women who were in labour in those settings. This proved to be phenomenally difficult because no hospital or freestanding midwifery unit could tell us how many low-risk women went into labour. So we had to try and set up special systems to try and monitor this. So we think we got a very high proportion. But the estimation of the denominator, i.e. the number of high-risk women, uh, low-risk women going into labour in the hospitals was extremely difficult to get. We did a huge amount of data chasing uh, and ended up with less than 4% of missing data, which for a data set of this size was quite something. The other thing I've not mentioned is that we could not risk selection bias. We could not risk parts of the population agreeing to take part and others not, because we needed to know what the impact in the country was. So these data were collected without any consent. So the women didn't give consent. And the only way you can do that is if you have no identifiers. So we didn't have name, address, um, hospital number, NHS number, we had none of that. So data chasing was extremely challenging, as you can imagine, because we had to go back to the hospitals and say, you haven't filled this form out properly for woman number 59682 and they'd have to try and find back to that woman's notes to collect the information. So in the end, we had collected data from nearly 80,000 women um, and ended up with 64,538 low-risk women. That was a lot of boxes of data sitting around in the office. Um, and ended up with about 20,000 women, low-risk women planning a birth in an obstetric unit, 17,000 home births, 11,000 FMU births, and 17,000 AMU births. Our original sample size calculation suggested that we needed 20,000 uh, 20, OU births, 17,000 home births, and we estimated that we might get as many as 5,000 in each of the types of midwifery units, and we'd have to put them together to have any statistical power. But because there was fantastic participation, we had enough numbers to be able to look at the four groups separately. So that's what I'm gonna be able to present. So not surprisingly, there were differences in maternal characteristics. The women planning uh, birth in different settings were different. Um, as an epidemiologist, it's always useful to see that what you expect to see is being seen, that so you're getting a good representative um, uh, population. But at the same time, it's always disappointing sometimes to see your social prejudices confirmed. So women planning a place, uh, plan to give birth at home were much more likely to be white, middle class, a bit heavier, a bit older than women planning birth in hospitals. So the big difference though was in women planning their first births at home. So only 20%, 27% of women planning birth at home were first time mothers versus 46% in FMUs, 50% in AMUs, and 54% in obstetric units. So all the analyses that I'm showing you are adjusted for this difference in parity, because this is absolutely crucial. 
The other thing we found, this is a complicated table, but the message is on the bottom line. The last time a woman is seen by a midwife in her antenatal care before she goes into labor, there's an assessment of her risk. If that woman is still low risk at that time, she's considered to be low risk. But when the woman is first seen in labor, another assessment is done. And clearly, new conditions can be picked up at that stage that weren't, weren't there at a last antenatal clinic appointment. So we call these complicating conditions at the onset of care in labor. And we found, rather surprisingly, a difference. We found more in the obstetric units than in the other settings. And I think, well, we now think fairly convincingly that this was due to the way that we selected the cohort. Because we selected them at onset of care in labor, those women who rupture their membranes at home may be told to stay at home waiting for contractions to start. When they get to a certain duration of membrane rupture without contractions starting, they'll be told, often over the phone, to come into hospital. So they haven't had any face-to-face -face care in their planned place of birth. So suddenly their planned place of birth will become hospital, if that makes sense. So clearly, if we included women with these risk factors, and high blood pressure and proteinuria and bleeding and so on and so forth are all risk factors for an adverse outcome, then if we just included all women, we prejudice our analysis against obstetric units because that includes more women with any of these risk factors. So the analysis that I'm going to show you show the, the, the differences between the groups for all women and then all women without any of these complicating conditions at labor onset. And so the truth lies somewhere between the two, probably. I've just said that. So we had 250 primary outcome events in 64,500 women. So this is the challenge we have of doing this sort of research, that childbirth is safe in this country. 4.3 adverse events per 1,000 births. And if you look at those broken down, this is the list of the outcomes, you can see that, as we anticipated, very few, very few babies died. So these are stillbirths after the onset of care and labor. So the babies were born when care started in labor, but died during the labor. So there were 14 out of 64,500. So in total, there was only about 13% of all of those primary outcomes, which, which were stillbirth or early neonatal death. But you can also see that most of it was neonatal encephalopathy. Now, neonatal and, and Meconium aspiration syndrome. Neonatal encephalopathy is where you get disordered brain function. The brain is, function is depressed because of lack of oxygen during the birth. And Meconium aspiration is also largely felt in those babies that are not very post-mature to be because of lack of oxygen. The baby opens their bowels in uterus, releases Meconium, and then gasping in utero as a consequence of hypoxia means that the baby inhales poo into their lungs. Charming, I know. But uh, often mild, sometimes very severe. These two outcomes made up 70% of the whole primary outcome. So in effect, when you're looking at the results, you need to remember that a lot of this is these two outcomes. Now, neonatal encephalopathy can be very mild with no long-term sequelae to severe, once you get to severe, about 50% mortality, and of the survivors, about 50% will have cerebral palsy. But the spectrum of mild, moderate, severe is probably about a third, a third, a third. So even with 114 cases, 
then the numbers of long babies with long-term consequences is probably very small. But of course, without identifiers, we couldn't do follow-up. So here's some results, and I don't have a pointer. So in the top half of the table, you'll see all low-risk women. So that's all of the 64,500. So you can see the four planned places of birth down the side. We've used obstetric units as the reference group because it was the largest group, not because that's considered the standard, but it's the largest, so statistically more powerful. Then we presented the numbers per thousand of the events. Those are weighted numbers per thousand with their confidence intervals, and then we've presented the odds ratios. So we've compared home in that top half of the table with obstetric units and got a, an odds ratio of 1.16 with 95% confidence intervals 0.76 to 1.77. So no statistically significant excess of the primary outcome in women planning birth at home compared with winning, women planning birth in an obstetric unit. Yeah. And then FMU compared with obstetric unit and AMU compared with obstetric unit. So you can see on that right side, because those confidence intervals include one, there's no statistically significant increased risk of, a, of an adverse primary outcome associated with different planned places of birth. In the bottom half of the table, we've repeated that analysis, excluding women with complicating conditions at labor onset. And here, you can begin to see that there is a statistically significant difference, which suggests that there is an increased risk of the adverse outcome, primary outcome, associated with women planning birth at home, this one here, where the confidence interval is 1.01 to 2.52. It's only just statistically significant. But for FMU and AMU compared with OUs, there was no apparent increase in risk. That's all women. If we separate those women by parity, so nulliferous women are women having their first baby and multiferous having their second or subsequent baby, you can see something beginning to emerge. So here, the association with an adverse primary outcome, if you're planning birth at home, compared with an obstetric unit, now has an odds ratio of 1.75. And the confidence intervals were 1.07 to 2.86. So again, a suggestion in first-time mothers that there was an increased risk associated with planning birth at home. But look at the numbers per thousand. I mean, I know these odds ratios are adjusted for all of the factors, but the event rate is still 5.3, 9.3 per thousand. The event rate is still low, but there is a significant excess. For women having their second or subsequent baby, there was no difference, no statistically significant difference in where you plan to give birth. But of course, the event rates as you might anticipate, the numbers of adverse events for multiparous women are lower. If you repeat that and take out all the women without complicating conditions at labor onset, that association with first-time mothers planning birth at home becomes stronger. So there, the odds ratio is 2.8, and the lower limit of the confidence interval is now well away from one, it's 1.59. So a stronger association. And the absolute event rates, 3.5 versus 9.5. For multiparous women, again, no difference. And for women planning birth in FMUs and AMUs, no statistically significant excess of risk associated with planning birth in those settings. So for multiparous women, women having their second or subsequent baby, and remember this is low-risk women, so to be a, 
a low-risk woman having your second baby, you've had to have a normal birth the first time around. So perhaps not surprisingly, that's a pretty good indicator that you can have a normal, straightforward birth the second time around. So for multiparous low-risk women, there were no differences in adverse perinatal outcomes between settings, but the risk of an adverse perinatal outcome appears to be higher for first-time women, mothers who plan to give birth at home. Now, we did look at a variety of other outcomes, and I'm just going to present a, a couple of them, uh, particularly interventions during labour and birth. So this is cesarean section during labour. And as you can see, there, this, these aren't numbers per thousand, these are percents now. So there was a much higher risk of having a cesarean section if you plan to give birth in an obstetric unit compared with all other settings. Very, very highly statistically significant difference for both nulliparous women and multiparous women. In terms of forceps delivery, exactly the same. Much higher risk of having a forceps delivery if you plan to give birth in an obstetric unit compared with settings outside. And there is this definition of normal birth. Um, I'll always forget this. A normal birth is without induction, without epidural, without general anaesthetic, without forceps or bontus, without a caesarean section, and without an episiotomy. So if you classify women according to normal birth, you can see for, for, for both first-time mothers and second-time mothers, planning a birth outside hospital increased your chance of having a normal birth. The other important information that we didn't know beforehand was how many women transferred during labour. And here, 45% of women transferred from home during or shortly after the birth. About 80% of them transferred before the birth. Now, that, you know, that, when people see that, they think that's a blue flashing light and an ambulance rushing, rushing down the road. For 75% of those 85% who transferred before birth, it was for epidural, failure of the labour to progress quickly enough, so it was a slow labour, but there's no concerns about the baby. That still left about 20% where there were concerns about the baby, but this is not inevitable. And of course, although these women will transfer by ambulance, um, if you plan to give birth in an obstetric unit versus home, there's a 100% transfer rate in labour. You've got to get to the hospital. Um, so higher than we anticipated, certainly, in terms of transfer. So our conclusions of this study were that there was lots of supporter policy of offering healthy women with low-risk pregnancies as a choice of birth setting. And I'll come back to that later, because that's been the most controversial thing we've said. And women planning birth in a midwifery unit and multiplus women planning birth at home experienced fewer interventions than those planning birth in an obstetric unit with no impact on perinatal outcomes. And for first-time mothers, planned home births also have fewer interventions but have poorer perinatal outcomes. So that's the sort of dryness of the study, but I just wanted to talk about what happened subsequently. So there was a couple of BMJ papers, the first one, which was in November 2011 on the left, which was presenting the clinical data that I just presented to you. Uh, and the one on the right was the cost-effectiveness, which also caused a flurry of publicity around the safety, nothing to do with the cost-effectiveness, but it was all to do with the safety of planned home birth again. There was lots of press. We managed, we had a very active process of managing the press release around it, and most, most of the press were fairly um, sensible in their reporting and were fairly accurate. We did this through the Science Media Center, which, if you know, is based in Wellcome Trust, very experienced at communicating scientific uh, results to an invited audience of science correspondents. Um, 
Not surprisingly, there were a couple of exceptions to the measured and um, accurate reporting of the data. Um, I was called several times on the, the day before the newspapers came out, wanting me to confirm that this headline, these headlines were accurate, uh, and I repeatedly said, no, you know they're not accurate, they're completely fictitious, and they said, well, we're gonna go with them anyway. Um, so we felt this was an important research question. I just want to touch on a couple of things. We'd love to have done a randomized control trial. Randomized control trials are the best way to evaluate the effects of an intervention, where you randomize participants to receive one arm of the intervention versus the other. There's no way we could have done a randomized control trial at planned place of birth at onset of care and labor. It's not a contracting, we'll just randomize you. You either stay at home or you can come into hospital or go to a midwifery unit. Somebody had once tried to do a randomized control trial of home birth versus hospital birth, and over the course of two years had managed to recruit 11 women, which I think was a sterling effort. So we knew that we couldn't do the gold standard to evaluate this intervention, which meant we had to be very careful about the design of this study to do everything we possibly could to try and get down to the, the, the answer that we, we, uh, we hoped was there. But no observational studies are perfect. I've been quite careful of, about talking about the appear, you know, that these results appear to suggest, because there may be other explanations for why we're finding these, uh, the findings we did. Um, it's been interesting. It's been a bit of a, the most controversial piece of research I've ever done. Uh, it is still being widely criticized um, by people who don't like the results. We knew there'd be some criticism. Interestingly, some consumer groups, some women's groups are very critical that the results of this will force women to give birth at home when they don't want to. Uh, it's probably worth reminding those of you who don't know that, that um, planning birth at home is still a bit of a minority activity in this country. Only about 3% of women in the UK plan to give birth at home, and probably about 5% overall plan to give birth outside hospital. So the idea that suddenly we'd be forcing 40% of women to give birth at home, I think would be stretching our services a little, and also our credibility. There's been quite a lot of lobbying of the NHS about this. Um, professional bodies, I'll show you in a minute, and an international response. Um, but it has led us to think how to implement these findings into practice, which I'll also just come back to. I suppose one of the most disappointing things is the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, their president, sorry, my president, I am a fellow of the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, who is a gynecologist, which means he deals with women's cancer, on his blog, stated that the RCOG favors birthing co-located midwifery load units rather than standalone units, since this women, means women have better access to consultant care. Uh, what I didn't show is that, that this sentence was preceded by, as the birthplace study shows, which of course, you know, I've seen the results and the birthplace study did not show that freestanding midwifery units were at increased risk. And very recently, January this month, in the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, a very, very influential uh, obstetrician and ethicist, um, Frank Chervenak, produced this paper called Planned Home Birth, the, Ref the Professional Responsibility Response. Obstetricians and other concerned physicians should understand, identify, and correct the root causes of the recrudescence of planned home birth. Respond to expressions of interest in planned home birth by women with evidence-based recommendations against it. Refuse to participate in planned home birth Obstetricians should not participate in or refer to randomized control trials of planned birth home versus planned hospital birth. 
This was based on a lecture he gave in Paris at the, uh, towards the end of 2012, um, where, interestingly, I came in for some very, very personal criticism for even daring to do the study, to even question whether planned home birth could be considered safe. So the idea that one should even do a study like this was, was considered anathema to uh, this uh, obstetrician ethicist in the US. Um, fortunately, we're not in the US, and I realize I obviously must have been doing something right to cause this degree of upset. Um, so, where to give birth at home or in hospital? Does it matter? I can't tell you where to give birth. All this has done is provided some more evidence. The issue about where you plan to give birth and safety. Safety isn't a yes or no answer. Safety depends on what your views and beliefs are, what you're prepared to accept. Some of you will go skiing. Some of you will do even more dangerous sports, which put your life and your family's happiness at risk. But we make those choices. Women make those choices when they're pregnant about what to do, what screening to accept, what to eat, what to drink, whether to smoke. They make all sorts of choices about themselves because this is about themselves. They make choices about where they plan to give birth. I can't tell you where you should plan to give birth. What I can now do is give you some evidence and some data which allows you to make a more informed decision than where we were a couple of years ago when we didn't have this information. But ultimately, it is up to women to decide where they want to give birth based on the information they've got and the ability of the services to provide care for them in their settings. Does it matter? Of course it matters. <laughs> There isn't a dinner party I don't go to where I don't hear a birth story. Um, and the most recent was from a 95-year-old woman who told me the story of her first birth in detail. Not, not graphic detail, but you know, this is a major event for women and their families having a baby, and people can remember this. These choices matter, not just in terms of the physical outcome of that event, whether they have a cesarean section, whether the baby has a fractured clavicle, but the emotional and psychological consequences that flow from that are really important. So yes, it does matter, but I can't tell you whether it's safe or not. What I can tell you is you have to make that decision about whether you feel, for you, with your set of values and beliefs, these different settings are safe for you. So finally, very finally, how are the results being used? I wish I could tell you. Are lots of women planning to give birth at home? I have no idea, because we don't collect the data still don't collect the data in the UK. Although, to be fair, this week, I have now started formal discussions with the Department of Health about how they can collect the data so that we can hopefully do this study again. This study, we estimated, in total, cost over 12 million pounds to do. And the idea that we could never do it again, even though the results are likely to change practice, seemed almost a negligent waste of resources because we need to be able to monitor what's happening. If more women choose to give birth outside hospital, are we going to get the same results? We need to know. We need routine data so we can look at that impact on mortality. There are 760,000 births a year in the UK. Two or three years, if we can classify low-risk women and uh, plan place of birth at labor onset, we'll know whether planning a birth at home leads to a higher risk of babies dying as a consequence of that choice. They'll still be very, 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 very small numbers, but at least we'll be able to look for differences. So we may, this is the first time I've been able to say this while talking about birthplace, we may be able to do this routinely uh, in the future on a rolling basis. So first of all, must thank everybody, and uh, thank you very much.